0: Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish.
1: Do you spend too much time learning with disappointing results? Do you find it difficult to remember what you read? Do you put off studying because it's boring and you're easily distracted? Then today's book is for you. Our guest struggled in the past with her learning, but has found techniques to help us master material, any material. Building on insights from neuroscience and cognitive psychology, she gives us a crash course to improve our ability to learn, whether we're studying math, language, coding, karate, cooking or anything else. You'll see why the strategies work because you'll see what's happening in the brain when you use them. No, this isn't another little book of miracles. But you'll find that reducing frustration and improving your study success may sometimes feel miraculous. I've been so looking forward to having our guest today onto the show. She is the brilliant author of learn like a pro science-based tools to become better at anything. Dr. Barbara Oakley, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, Aiden, it's such a pleasure to be here.
1: <laughs> I want to firstly, thank you for the beautiful endorsement that you gave for my book. It's one of the few that they printed in the book. That's how well-written it was, but apart from that, Understanding your work over the past few years really helps me understand how people learn so I could write better for people to learn. But also in the workshops I run or when I'm lecturing in college, it really helps me work through metaphor and language that the recipient will understand. So that was largely due to a lot of your work in the past. So thank you.
0: Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And your book was fantastic. I think people just don't realize that you that in today's society, you just need to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, which is what change can often make you feel. So it's, uh, I think the metaphors you use, there's just so much evidence from neuroscience that metaphors really help you kind of go through the portal to a future uh, and a different way of thinking about things that is invaluable.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I, I really feel that myself. I feel when, when a metaphor, if you don't originally have that metaphor in your head, you learn on the double because you learn the metaphor and then the m- metaphor becomes a vehicle through which to to sell your idea, essentially. So that's really dawned on me and what I wrote that way. But let's start with you. This show is about you. And I wanted to start with your struggle because people see you now as this fait accompli You know, very successful author, writer, uh, college professor, board member of Coursera. So you're at the pinnacle of your career, but it wasn't always that way. You had a lot of struggle with your early learning, particularly with math.
0: It is kind of funny because I have had so many failures in my life that that if people only knew they would uh, be encouraged about how their life is unfolding. Um, I remember when I was a waitress in high school, I was probably the world's worst waitress. I, I forgot everybody's orders. I, I would clean dishes, but I wouldn't get the water hot enough. And when I gave my two weeks notice, uh, they said, "Barb, it's okay. You don't need to give two weeks notice. You can quit right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, and I, I did. I, I failed miserably at uh, at math and science when I was in elementary, middle, and high school. And I thought, well, the only thing maybe I can do is how about I just try and learn another language? Because I, I really felt that learning another language could kind of give me a different perspective on reality. And like all of us, I'm trying to understand what reality is. So I I found out I could get free language uh, education if I joined the army. So I did. And I got, as my father said, Oh, you're going to get an education. All right. (laughs) And I did. It wasn't exactly what I expected, but the defense language Institute is truly one of the greatest language learning um, places in the world. And so I learned I learned Russian. Um, I, it's rather rusty now, although I find that if I'm inebriated or irritated, I can still swear quite light nicely. <laughs> uh, uh, but the the thing is what when I got into the military and they made me a signal officer of all things, when I knew nothing about how to lay cable or how switchboards worked or how a radio system worked. And, uh, I was terrible at my job, another failure. And, but I decided to go back to school and to the university and see if I actually could learn in math and science. And so I was 26 years old and the big, uh, push for all of that? Well, I guess there were a couple, because number one, it was like, what could be more alien to my personality than becoming an engineer? I mean, really, there's pretty much nothing on earth that could be more alien. So it was a challenge there. But the other thing, and this was a big motivator, is just that I um I couldn't really get a job at the kind of things I was interested in. And I I found that I, by following my passion and just studying a language, I'd put myself in this career box. But um, I think what's really of most interest is that when I went back to, to the university and I started with remedial high school algebra and slowly began climbing my way upward, the whole time... I was using some of these techniques that I'd learned in the defense language Institute. And what I had not realized at the time was that the brain has two very different learning systems. It has a declarative system through the hippocampus, which is like I explain something to you and you learn it through the declarative system or The other one is the procedural system, which goes through the basal ganglia. That system is more like you practice a bunch of times. You get it, but you can't explain it. So a lot of the learning you did in sports involved that procedural system. So uh, I I think throughout my whole um, learning trajectory, I have wondered why on earth would using techniques for language enhance my ability to learn in math? And now I understand it's because a big part of learning in math and in coding and in STEM and in language learning is procedural learning through that basal ganglia system. So uh, a big um, lack in modern Western reform education, particularly in mathematics, is that procedural system is bad. They don't say it that way. They What they say is drill is kill, but actually drill is skill. When you practice enough, I mean, any sports person knows you need to practice to kind of get some things so that you can do them instantly without even thinking about it. Really important actions it's just like that in math. It's just like that in language learning. So I think uh, my biggest contribution, if you might call it that, is simply bringing attention to the fantastic research on the habit-based learning system that's the procedural system, which makes it so you don't even have to think about some stuff. You can just do it so much more easily. And I think um, some major changes need to happen in the in the educational system to accommodate these new findings from neuroscience.
1: I'm just thinking about the mental model you gave me through reading the book. I applied it now to how your story about being stuck. So when you became stuck, you decided I need to learn a language. And it ties beautifully to the metaphor you use of the maze that we have. We become cognitively stuck a lot of time and even for our audience think about the time maybe you have to write a paper or you have to come up with a new article and you're stuck and barbara gives this beautiful metaphor of two modes of thinking we have the focused mode and diffuse mode and the concept of the maze i'd love if you'd share this barbara
0: sure so we let's see when we are trying to learn something we can often, it, what we're doing is we're activating a little pattern uh, in our brain. And the pattern may not be very good yet, but that is known as, by psychologists, as the task positive network. But just think of it as a little group of neurons that's trying to figure something out. Well, it may be that to figure it out, you don't need this group of neurons, you need this group of neurons. This group is doing the wrong thing. But you can get cognitively fixated in this group. So, a good thing to do for virtually all learning is sit and study intensively with no interruptions, but then take a little break here and there. So, uh, the Pomodoro technique is a perfect way of doing this. And then I'll lead back to focused and diffuse. But the Pomodoro technique, is you put away all distractions, set a timer for 25 minutes, focus as intently as you can for 25 minutes, and, You know, realizing that your mind is going to go off track, just bring it back, and then reward yourself with a little break for five minutes or so. So what this does is that intense focus gets you kind of locked in on what you're trying to, to do, and then that five-minute break allows you a little bit of time to do several things. For one thing, it allows you to get away from that. Um, if you're cognitively fixated on a wrong in a wrong way of looking at things, that little break will allow you to come back and look at it slightly differently and maybe break you out of that cognitive fixation. But the other thing it can do is... As you're learning something, you're, you're, you're sending information to both your hippocampus and your neocortex. Your neocortex is literally scatterbrained. It's, it's like putting the information all over the place, and it's pretty weak. The hippocampus, it's like the index that knows where everything got put. And the index can learn pretty quickly and get stuff. But when you take that five-minute break, what the hippocampus index does is it turns around to the neocortex and says, hey, you know, you know what she said? This is what she said. And here's how to make sense of it. And once you practice these things, and that little five-minute break allows you to reinforce what you've been learning. And the great thing about that is that you're not even conscious of it. You you think you're not doing anything. You're just sipping a cup of tea or whatever. But you, actually, behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. And I think that's why people have ignored the dramatic need for a break for so long.
1: I was so cocky when I read that part about the Pomodoro technique. You can see behind me, I have my Pomodoro timer here strategically placed so awesome. besides it. Strategically placed beside your book, by the way, but that's how <laughs> I actually read. I, I do the 20, I do 25 minutes on five minutes off, but here's where I got knocked off. My cocky pedestal was when you talked about what you do in those five minutes, because for me, I was using it as a chance to catch up on email or something, or maybe my text or something like that. And you go, no way do do, do that because it's actually the five minutes needs to be these moments of clarity, where you can let the learning seep in, I really thought about that, like, it's like, watering a plant, and then you have to give the plant a moment for the for the water to trickle down into the soil. And I, I thought that's actually what I was doing wrong. And it was brilliant to learn that. And you talk also here about attentional residue, I thought that was fascinating. Uh,
0: attentional residue is when you are studying something. And then you know, somebody calls you and you get interrupted. And then while you're talking to them, part of your mind is still on this, what you had been on. So you're actually not fully paying attention to this interruption. And then when you come back, you're kind of left over with what you heard from the interruption. So you're not really quite fully there yet in the new task. Now, a, uh, so, in other words, you're just really ineffective when you're no, when you're interrupted a lot. Um, but oh, I gotta make myself a note. I have such like a poor um, working memory that all these ideas flood in, and then uh, so now I've got to see if I can return to what we were just talking about. So if you um so I'm just so easily distracted <laughs> that. I can even distract myself, but uh, so getting back to that, if if you're interrupted a lot, then a good trick is to note mentally where you are at. Just so say, "Look, I'm a third of the way down this page," and that that gives you a bit of closure so that when you go to this other task you can go like more easily to it and actually get your mind completely off it hopefully you finish that task then you can return more easily so just it's a simple trick and it seems trivial but just noting mentally oh i'm i'm oh i've got a bookmark right there that's where i go back to or i'm right at this point in the video the main point was this okay now i turn to you So sometimes you'll notice that like you walk into the office of a a big executive or something like that, and they'll work on their stuff, and then they'll look up at you. And I had always kind of thought, well, that's pretty cocky. You know, it's a little conceited. But actually, what they may likely be doing, if they're not being conceited, is wrapping up this thing so they can put their full attention on you. But the other idea that I had interrupted myself about related to the uh, fact that multitasking is always seen as a bad thing. In other words, the type of multitasking where you are looking at one thing, then you go to another, then you come back to the first, because that is uh, very inefficient. It pulls you out push you back and so forth. But it has been found that it, it can have a flip side of more creativity. So people who do tend to multitask can can be more um, more creative. And even there's a study that shows that in a coffee shop, if you study in a coffee shop, that clank and so forth, it, it actually, every time a clank happens, it puts you very slightly into that more relaxed, diffuse mode of thinking. And those two modes are really the most important um, modes for us to understand how we learn, d- you know, despite the, uh, I mean, it is true, it's like there's two biological um, learning mechanisms. One is the the declarative pathway through the hippocampus. The second is the procedural pathway through the basal ganglia. But if we look at it from a different perspective, focus mode means that we're activating, you know, pretty much one activity area, like related to writing or to doing math. Diffuse mode means we're activating like a whole tree of stuff, and we can uh, make all these connections. We can't focus carefully, but we can make a connection between new things. It's almost like the difference between uh, walking around in your front yard or you know right in the little part in front of your apartment versus taking a drone and flying someplace completely different. That, that diffuse mode allows you to make much broader connections. And sometimes that's what you need when you're trying to learn something.
1: I, I love that metaphor. It made me think of, I don't know if you've seen these new automated factories. You see them, for example, for Amazon, and it's very structured and the robots only follow a certain path to go and select something from sector 7G or whatever it might be. And I thought about that where you have these very strict pathways that are well-worn pathways that AI can follow. And then on top, maybe you had the drone hovering from side to side and, and it's then we connect dots between different things, between the different shelves and the different concepts on those shelves. And I thought about that because really, when you think about people in their overscheduled meeting world today, even, even virtually. People have back-to-back meetings all day. They don't allow the opportunity for the diffusion to take place, for the ideas to emerge, and for the creativity to come out. And I wanted to quote a key point you say here. As long as we are focusing on a particular topic, we are blocking activities of our diffuse mode on that topic. It's only when we get to our focus completely off the topic that our diffuse mode can work on it but we must first focus hard on learning the learning challenge for the diffuse mode to then be able to work its magic. So it's this moment of intense taking the information, maybe create a pathway, but then the gap again. So this is where Pomodoro works so well with diffuse and attentional mode.
0: That's exactly right. And I, I love that metaphor of the drone being able to kind of bring things from a far distance, you know, much more quickly. I I do have to say there's a a interesting new area of robot uh, and drone research called, it it involves cobots instead of robots. And cobots are collaborative robots. So you can imagine that if, if they have one drone at an Amazon warehouse, that's that's tricky enough to get to do what you want it to do. But what if you have a team or a swarm of a hundred robots, then you want them to collaborate together and not run into one another. And so I think that's actually uh, even maybe more like what the diffuse mode does, because it it has all these different things that are just running around in the background and uh, trying to put things together, so it's it's learning is such a fascinating thing.
1: It's so fascinating. You do such a great job of of uh, demystifying it and making it approachable. But also, more importantly, some of these tools. I'd love to share one now because this is one I'd wish I'd understood in my school days, particularly when I was doing exams. It's the hard start approach for tests. Let's share this one, Barbara.
0: Okay. Well, hard start. That's one of my favorites because I remember. Um, they always used to tell me at the university and at school, wow, do the easiest problems first. And, he, you know, um, I mean, that's true. If you have not studied at all, do the easiest problems first. But I used to find that if I would start on the hard, hardest problem and then pull myself off as soon as I got stuck. So that was usually after about two or three minutes and then come back to it later, I could make a lot more progress on it. And it's because I focus. Then when I get stuck, I turn to a much easier problem. So I focus on it. That complete focus on this other intense problem, especially under the conditions of the test, I am really focused on that. That gets my focus off of this. And sort of releases it so that the diffuse mode can go to work in the background on it. Then when I return to this later in the test, oh, yeah, you know, the next step was just this. Now the rest of it's easy. So it's uh, that hard start technique sort of allows you to use your brain as a dual processor. So you're always focusing on something. But part of the time, your diffuse mode is also working in the background. I mean, imagine if you uh, do the e- start with the easiest problems and work your way up to the hardest. What you've just done. Let's say you have a three-hour test. So at the very end of the test, when you are completely mentally exhausted and you're stressed, and there's hardly any time left, that's when you're doing the hardest problem. <laughs> it like makes no sense whatsoever. So I found that this, uh, starting with the hardest problem, and and I think the the reason that that's counterintuitive for people is just because they have not been taught how important it is to be able to pull yourself off. So many times I'll hear from students that, you know, they they got, they could do a lot of the problems on the test, but they started with this one problem and then they got stuck on it and they spent the whole test on it. it the real trick to good test taking, if you've studied well, is to just know when to pull yourself off things. And, you know, uh, they always say, don't give up, be persistent. Well, it's like, no, give up, don't be persistent. Just come back to it later and that'll do the trick.
1: It really made me think Barbara, you know, I often think about one of my educations growing up, I'm sure like you in the army was exercise and training. And the the value of the break as is, is more important than the exercise itself. Yes, you have to do the exercise, but you need the break for the muscle to grow. And I thought about it in the exact same way, even that when I get stuck, say, for example, I'm doing my chest, and I get stuck, and I get stuck on a plateau, I can't lift anymore. The advice would say, work on the work on the muscles around it. And then actually that chest muscle will get better and your personal best gets better. And I visualized that for for this instance of becoming stuck. But I wanted to build on this because one of the things that you talk about is how, for example, writing. This works for essay writing as well. And most people kind of try to have these two modes running at once. And we had a brilliant guest on the show before. You'd love her writing, Ann Janzer. She helped me actually with the structuring of my book. She was fantastic. But she talked about two modes for writing, Barbara, which one was what she called the scribe mode, which is the editor. And then there was the muse, where you just let all the thinking flow out of you. And I thought that worked beautifully with the way you talk about diffuse mode.
0: That uh, That's so true. I have to note on the side that this analogy between muscle uh, cells and neural cells is actually a good one because they're both, you know, they're, they're both tissues, neural uh, bodily tissues, but sometimes people will irrelev- irreverently refer to that analogy as the meathead theory of learning. <laughs> well, thank I mean, you. Uh, yes, that's one of my
1: nicer names I've been called.
0: <laughs> but it, it's a really good analogy because it also tells you that you can't just cram the night before a big test and expect to have the muscular or neural structure that you need to do well on the test. But um that i I think that that analogy of the you know the sort of the scribe mode and the muse mode is such a a good analogy for focused mode and diffuse mode. So diffuse mode, when I say that it's sort of a catch-all term for the default mode network and but diffuse mode is just easier to say uh, and it seems more relaxed. but anyway, um this network is where you're more internally focused. So it's not like you're con- not concentrating at all. It's like you're concentrating, but not on externally focused kinds of things. So a good way to, so when you are writing, a lot of the time you're, you're getting that from within. You're not maybe so much, unless you're plagiarizing or something, getting it from, You'll even notice, like, let's say you're reading a, a book and it's giving you some ideas. You might glance at that, but you're actually drawing from inside yourself, you know, with a little bit of nudge from whatever you're reading. So a, uh, a good trick when you're writing, if you struggle, see, if you try to edit what you're writing, you go from default mode network to focus mode. So you go from diffuse to focused and it's just like putting a brake on what you're trying to write because it's like oh well no wait no that wasn't very good I got to redo this and it's like you're trying to drive but you have your foot on the brake at the same time. So a good thing to do is to just put a a cloth over your monitor and type without allowing yourself to look and edit. Um, whatever you're doing, and that will keep you more in the flow with the muse, and later go back and edit. There are some writers who can go back and forth, but many, um, especially novice writers, can really benefit from, you know, just not editing while they're writing and trying to get it out. And so often, I, I like I'll start to write something, and I'll go oh. That's bad. That's <laughs> really bad. I no, I can't put that down. And then I'll say, nope, the rule is no editing of yourself. So put it down. And by golly, I'll go back later. And you know, that wasn't that bad. And in fact, if I just kind of tweak it a little, oh, that's actually really good. So the fact that I made myself not edit initially and just get it out on paper was really helpful. And I can write uh, nowadays. Um, you know, depending on the subject matter, I can often write relatively quickly. And I think it's just learning this trick of quit editing while you're trying to get it out.
1: I think it's so valuable for people to know that because they get stuck and then they give up. And that's the worst thing that can happen. And, you know, I often think of your story and the resilience that you picked up along the way from the failures. And oftentimes people when they can be cursed by success or talent, sometimes that they don't meet those resilience points that actually make the huge difference. So it's a really important muscle as well to be built up. But let's go deeper into the brain, because you do this beautifully in the book with metaphor. And we wanted to here discover the best techniques for transferring information to long term memory. And again, this is not something people know the science behind because when you do and you can visualize it happening you can create the environment for it to happen so perhaps we'll start with synapses and dendrites and you call it here link building
0: okay so it's it's actually i mean even though scientists have a vested interest in making the brain seem incredibly complex and it is really complex. The bottom line is we can understand some of the key aspects of how the brain works really easily and just by using metaphor or not even using metaphor. I mean, the the fundamental idea is that when you learn something, you, you have a bunch of neurons running around in your brain and you just make a connection between a certain small set of neurons when you learn something in long-term memory. So that's in the neocortex. So, uh, so basically you'll learn something well, like your name, your friend's name, your address, whatever. It goes into a set of links in long-term memory in the neocortex. So you've just connected some neurons. Now, let's say that you learn that um, two times four is eight. Okay, that's a set of links in uh, the neocortex. Now you practice with that in different contexts. Maybe you say, what's eight divided by two? You know that's sort of a uh, just a, a different way of looking at that same uh, equation or and, and you start looking at well, what's eight times three? and all these kinds of things. what what you're doing is you're just you're practicing with that set of links and you're creating closely related set of links. And the more you practice with what is eight times two, the stronger that set of links become so that it it can become, uh, you don't even need to think about it. And you certainly don't need to imagine, well, I've got two beans on one side and four, let's see., uh, let's see, eight beans on the other. So what's two times eight? you know, uh, and you're imagining all that stuff. No, it, it just it's instant. Um, procedural fluency with that idea. And that arises because you practiced and strengthened the synapses. And the synapses are simply the connections between those those neurons. So um, you can almost imagine it, imagine it like, I mean, one way, and it's not the best way, but you can kind of think of it as they, they get closer and closer, uh, those connections. Or that the the connection gets broader and broader. So as it gets stronger, this connection actually gets bigger. So it's like I have fingers with huge, uh, you know, uh, sort of um, like a coin that develops on each side, and they stick together. And that's what practice will do for you.
1: Yeah, I love this. And I, I visualize it kind of like, you're pulling, you know, this this wire to this wire and you're pulling them together to make the connection but i say that because there is some effort involved there and you talk about this that the mental effort we spend will help pull the spines out toward the axons so that the neural links can form and be more intense in, in, in those connections and what I, why i say that and bring it back to the meathead uh, theory <laughs> is one of the parts of the meathead theory of building muscle is that sleep is so important. And it's the exact same for learning.
0: It is. Um, when you sleep, it turns out that especially if right before you sleep, you go, oh, yeah. Okay. Now, how do I do that derivative again? How And you kind of run through it in your mind. Then you go to sleep. And what your brain will do is it kind of goes oh yeah, you know, she thinks that's really important. So I'm going to practice it. And it will literally hundreds of times just practice those connections. And the more those connections get practiced, in other words, they have uh, sort of electrical and neurochemical signals passing through them, the bigger those connections become, And also, so sleep is incredibly important because it helps you practice what you've learned during the day. It also has a sort of a differing bath of chemicals that allow those dendritic spines to, or which are the connecting part of the connection to emerge and to kind of solidify so that you've got a nice, strong, stable connection between the neurons. So uh, poor sleep is a, um, it's a recipe for poor learning. So in other words, if you spend the entire day um, studying and then you cram all the way through the night, you wake up the next day, it, it, you don't have anything because you haven't had enough time to seal into place that new learning that you've done.
1: It's interesting. I thought about that even from many of our listeners will have stressful roles or jobs in life, or maybe it's just an event in life. And we often go to sleep with that top of mind. And then essentially, you're dwelling on that all night. And, you know, made me think of the value of things like gratitude practices or gratitude journal at nighttime is for this reason.
0: That's, that's, that's a really good point. And I think gratitude is something we all need more of. I still remember reading the the story of a uh, a Norwegian during World War II who came from England to Norway to try to fight against the Nazis, and um, he he went through unbelievable. He was. They caught them right at the very beginning, except for him and he he managed to escape his toes got all froze uh that he eventually just cut them off with a penknife. He was doing all this um, you know, and he he got stuck in a, um, a an ice cave for several weeks, and they thought he was dead, and he should have been dead, but then they got him out, but while he was in there, he was thinking about things like. You know, how on earth could I have possibly complained to the waiter in that one restaurant that there was a dirty spot on the on the, uh, you know, on the tablecloth? How trivial was that? You know, and when he came back, he lived his life apparently in a very different way, which was much more full of gratitude.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, I, I did this for quite a while and I I just fell out of the practice of it, but the whole concept was to try to imagine something that you take for granted and then that you didn't have it. And I started doing it with glasses of water and I imagined that I was stuck in a desert or something like that. And I just came through and I, this is my first glass of water in days I was parched and it actually your brain, you trick your brain, your brain ends up experiencing a totally different as well.
0: Oh, it, it, that is a really good. Uh, so there's, there's some really good research on this. Um, it, basically reframing is the way to go. It's a, it's a, a fantastic way of tricking your brain into, um, I mean, your brain is always sort of predicting what is going to happen and what life is and what everything is right now. And with you imagining that reality is a little bit different. You're actually physically tricking the motivational systems that, that output dopamine that allow you to want to do things. You're tricking him into actually dispersing those, uh, that dopamine that helps with motivation. So it's a, that's a, a very good technique. I, I remember one of my students who was a, um, He used to work on a chicken farm, you know, one of those places that has like hundreds of thousands of chickens. And these chickens were not living in the best of circumstances, shall we say. In fact, they wouldn't allow photographs or anything like that. But he would and he worked there all through a summer and it was it stank and it did all this stuff. So when he was taking his engineering studies, he would imagine himself back in that chicken farm and the, with all the smell and then dying chickens and you know and say do you want to go back there and that was this great motivational trick for him uh, that really helped propel him through engineering school
1: it reminds me of the brazilian football players you know when you think of some of the poverty that they've come from the real motivator is that i want to get away from this and become one of the best football players in the world and when you compare that motivation with somebody who has a lot of privilege in our lives, the fallback net is a lot bigger for the person who comes from a privileged background. So the motivation behind that, it must be immense. But I, I'd love to move on because I, I wanted to talk about this. Um, this show, as you know, for me is an amazing way to learn, read the book, get to talk, take notes, actually. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was that, but I, I go talk to the author like this, which is wonderful discuss the concepts, then I, I have to edit it myself. And I I do that on purpose, because it's another chance to learn. But also the notes I take. And one of the reasons I sent you my notes, I don't always do that was just, I was almost kind of going, look, teacher, look what I did. (laughs) 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 Because, because actually what I did differently this week, Barbara was, I did, I don't usually have the time or give myself the diffuse mode time to take a, a moment away from the notes and then revisit them. It's almost on the day I read the notes and then do the interview. But I revisited them every day. So I had this kind of compound building of the knowledge from your book. And it was wonderful. But also that highlights something that's really important for us to do.
0: It, it is and that's retrieval practice in some sense. So what you were doing was retrieving the key ideas of what we were going to talk about and what you had learned and retrieval practice in other words not just looking at something and thinking you know it but also kind of looking away and seeing if you can retrieve the ideas from your own brain that ensures you actually have those links in long-term memory and that retrieval practice or recall is one of the very, very, very best ways to learn the material. So use flashcards. Try to remember as you're out walking, what were the key points that I learned today in whatever? Uh, those can really help solidify whatever you have learned.
1: Yeah. And it made me think of, you know, when you think about organizational transformation programs or innovation programs, what you're doing is it's essentially changing habits within an organization. And I thought about it as the same thing as cramming for an exam. You can't possibly go out to want to do an exam having not done the study over a long period of time, just like you won't go and run a marathon if you have trained for a week beforehand. Yet this happens in organizations all the time where they bring in a big, you know, town hall meeting and they announce change and then they expect change to happen, but they don't have those spacing effects for the learning and the change to really happen.
0: That's so true. What... (sighs) This goes back to that idea of declarative and procedural learning. Declarative, I can explain it to you. You sort of get it. Weak set of patterns. Practice with it. You get the more you practice, the stronger those patterns get. So when you're at an organization, if you just explain it, you've only done one way of learning. You haven't practiced with it. And so they think that explanation is enough. But it's actually mechanisms for practicing that really embed it and help change a culture.
1: And and it brings to mind another thing, which is many people who get to the top of a career ladder get there based on old information. And with the rate of change of information in the world today, that's no longer enough. And you go a a step further here and say, if you want to advance quickly in your learning, you need to continue forming new new connections in long-term memory not just reinforce the connections you've already made. This means it's important to keep pushing yourself every day with harder and harder material. And that doesn't happen a lot of the time because many leaders get to the top of the ladder and then they start to manage what they've got there and they stop letting new information in because it's a challenge.
0: It is, you know, and I can understand why they can end up that way because if you're trying to... Run a uh, an entire organization, and then lead a somewhat balanced life where you're actually paying attention to your your family and so forth. That doesn't leave a lot of time left. So uh, so it is difficult to to find the time. And then what, you know, which thing do you choose to help keep your mind open? Uh, i I always tend to think that, you know, try to think, Try to choose some things that make you feel uncomfortable. And that's usually a good guide that uh, maybe that's something you should explore a little bit about.
1: Barbara, I was uh, we we just took a little break there to go, where will we go in the time we have left? But I thought one that was really important was something that I had failed with myself where I thought I'd failed was I tried to do speed reading and I felt by speed reading, none of it was sinking in at all that I'd yes, I'd read the book, the task was done. But the learning hadn't taken effect. And I was like, I'm better off even reading half the book better, and taking the concepts in than speed reading. I'd love if you'd share this, because a lot of our author, a lot of our listeners are readers.
0: So there's just excellent um, evidence that you can make your eyes move faster, but you can't make your brain move faster. So the the best way to be able to read material faster is to know a lot about that material already. Then you can read more swiftly on it. Um, But most speed reading programs, every one that I know at least, just involve trying to uh, basically teaching you how to skim. But we already kind of can do skimming. So why bother you you it takes time to make those neural links in long-term memory Some people can do it really swiftly most people cannot it takes some time to do it so you you need to just give yourself a little bit of um you know just realize that you you're not if you're not a super genius that's okay in fact I I love to talk about my favorite hero in in science is Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who was a terrible, terrible student. And he won the Nobel prize. He was considered the father of modern neuroscience. I asked him, how'd you do it? I mean, because basically (laughs) you're, uh, uh, you're not that smart. (laughs) So, uh, and he said, "I I was no genius and he wasn't, but he said, I've worked with many geniuses And the problem with geniuses is they tend, they're really smart. They often tend to skim over the top of whatever they're being presented with. They assume they already know the material. They haven't gone in depth into it. And so then they blithely go off with their assumption and they can't change their mind because they're so used to being right. So if you're one of those non-geniuses that really has to dig into the material to understand it, rejoice, because you will sometimes see things even geniuses cannot see. So it's um, uh, learning is a funny thing. And if you have a poor working memory, like I do, and you may not learn as quickly as others, you can still go way deeper than, than they can sometimes.
1: Beautiful Barbara, and I just want to remind our audience, I'm starting a new podcast called Inside Learning with the Learn of Centre in Trinity College, and Barbara's going to be a future guest on that podcast as well. So if you want to hear more from Barbara, we'll have more t- time there. And Barbara, I know you, I'm going to keep asking you to come back uh, onto the show again. We still have uh, a mind for numbers to cover as well, which is another one of your fantastic books, but your writing is so brilliant. It's so comprehensible and your breakdown learning to democratize it for everybody. So I really want to thank you for that. Is there anything you'd like to say before I close today's show?
0: Oh, no, it's just so much fun. You ask great questions. And so we we only went along the tips of the surface of the material. So we have so much more that we can speak about. I look forward to it.
1: I'll draw it out as much as I can, Barbara. (laughs) Author of Learn Like a Pro, Science-Based Tools to Become Better at Anything, Dr. Barbara Oakley. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you.